You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to Real Vision. It's Wednesday, October 21st, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by the Daily Dirt Naps, Jared Dillian. But first, with the day's stories, Nick Correa. Thanks, Ash. Yesterday, the conference board released the results for their measure of CEO confidence survey for Q3, and it reads at 64, up from 45. Up 19 points from last quarter, the data demonstrates a significant hike in the outlook for CEOs, the first time where responses have been more positive than negative since 2018. This contrasts sharply against the more feeble change in consumer confidence numbers from the previous quarter, which are still below pre-pandemic levels. 25% of CEOs reported that they anticipate increased capital spending over the next 12 months which is up from 15% earlier in the quarter, and 36% stated that they anticipated upward revisions in capital spending beyond the next year. 70% believe that economic conditions were better now than they were six months ago, which is up from 8%, and only 21% said that they were worse, which is down from 90%. In terms of their short-term outlook, 64% said that economic conditions would improve over the next six months, and only 15% expect them to worsen. Regarding employment over the next 12 months, the results were more of a mixed bag, which may affirm more long-term tribulation for labor markets and the uncertainty that consumers are currently experiencing. 34% reported that they foresaw a net reduction in their workforce, and an additional 34% anticipated no change. 62% expected little to no problems in finding qualified workers, with 11% saying that there were more broad-based talent shortages or hiring problems. 21% reported that they did not foresee an increase in wages, and 5% said they may reduce wages. This yet again points to the bifurcation of the financial and the real economies and how the recovery may in fact be K-shaped. The proliferation of special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, this year is evidence of that sort of recovery, and the latest in the SPAC trend are talks between Michael Bloomberg and Bill Ackman, taking Bloomberg LP public through selling a minority stake to Ackman's blank check company, Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. A few months ago, Ackman listed the SPAC on the New York Stock Exchange and raised $5 billion in order to buy or merge with another company, which enables that company to take the SPAC stock listing. A spokesperson for Bloomberg LP denied that a deal was being explored, and Ackman declined to comment. However, should a deal between Bloomberg and Ackman come to fruition, it's positioned in such a way that Bloomberg would not have to relinquish his 88% ownership stake in his company, but still provide enough float. Not only could the terms be favorable for Bloomberg and his company, it would also allow the investors in Ackman's SPAC a stake in this major media company for $20 a share, which was the SPAC's IPO price, and it would become one of the most successful SPACs yet. And with that, I'll send it back over to Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jared, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, it's great to have you. You know, Jared, we were talking off camera a little bit before we got started here uh, about risk and stress in markets. It seems like a very pertinent subject uh, for where we've been for the last several months. What's your thought on that right now? Yeah, you know, I have some different opinions on this. Um, you know, most people, when they trade, they seek to maximize return. And they look at returns to the exclusion of all else. I mean, even if you have retail investors that are looking at mutual funds, they look at the returns. They say this one returned the most. Nobody goes into the prospectus and looks at the standard deviation. Nobody looks at the risk of these funds. They only think about returns. When you have a guy like Dave Ramsey, who says to his followers that you should invest in aggressive growth mutual funds because they return the most. But there's no discussions about risk. So one of the ways I manage my financial affairs is that I pay very close attention to risk. And I want to get to a point psychologically where not only am I not staying up at night worrying about my positions, I'm not thinking about it at all. And it's very rare. I mean, you have to go back to March when we were melting down. I was experiencing a little bit of stress. But there's very few times you know, in my history where I have experienced a lot of financial stress. Yeah. So what are the first things that you look at? For example, you use the exa example of a, met of a mutual fund. What are the first things that you look at when it comes to evaluating risk? And how does that relate uh, to how you think about the psychological aspect of the stress? It's really about portfolio construction. Okay. And if I go buy all the FANG stocks, I have very concentrated risk in one factor. Okay, so when I build a portfolio, I like to take positions in a number of different factors, including offsetting factors. And that helps reduce my overall risk and my overall volatility. Yeah, you know, this is something that I think is very broadly misunderstood uh, by people who are relatively new to the space. The idea that portfolio construction is not just about the absolute risk of the underlying constituents, but about how they offset each other uh, and the potential to uh, and the potential to balance uh, in the event of events that hit one or the other of the constituents of the portfolio. Yeah, and the other thing is is that um, in times of market stress your portfolio will behave in ways that you cannot predict. Things that weren't correlated will become correlated. Things that were correlated will become uncorrelated. And a lot of the hedges that you put on will stop to work, will, start, will stop working. So you really have to focus on building a portfolio that is immunized from volatility. Yeah, I think probably the most uh, obvious example of this is uh, the conversation around the risk parity trade breaking down a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's a function of the Treasury market. You know, I'm looking at my portfolio here and, you know, it's it's a grab bag of stuff. I have gold. I have brick and mortar retailers. I have Beyond Meat. Uh, I have Canadian banks. I, I mean, it's just like it's it's a complete it's all stuff that is very uncorrelated. Right. And how do you measure that lack of correlation? What's the, what are the tools that you use to structure that portfolio? You know, I, I mean, one of the things with me is I'm a very unquantitative guy. Uh, you know, even after working at a bank and doing a lot of stuff in spreadsheets and being mathematical, I've sort of given that all up. I consider portfolio construction to be an art rather than a science. 
And I think it's a function of experience. It's something that you get better at over time. I'm still trying to get better at it, but I don't have any quantitative tools to evaluate my portfolio. It's just literally, it's just all experience. So then what are some of the, the qualitative tools? How do you think about uh, making those uh, making those allocations? And what are the, the guiding principles that you have that your experience has taught you work well? So one of the things I do is when I'm adding a position to a portfolio, I don't think about the position on a standalone basis. For example, if I like, uh, let's just say Google, okay? A lot of people, when they buy a stock, they say, I like this stock, but they don't consider that stock as a contribution of risk to the overall portfolio. You can't just look at it on a standalone basis. You have to look at how it interacts with everything else. And when yeah. I say I, you know, I minimize my financial stress, like I really, you know, I don't, I don't just minimize my financial stress. I really don't even think about my portfolio. I don't think about it for days at a time. That's interesting. So when you do what, you know, for example, Google, do you then look at other members of that sector and think I might not want to be in that or I might want to be in that to a lesser weighting, uh, finding a sort of a best in class for a particular sector and subsector and then avoiding the rest of it? How do you think about it? No, actually, actually, that's that's exactly what I do. And I don't just do it with stocks. I do it on a macro basis. I do it with FX and rates and emerging markets and stuff like that. So it all goes into the soup. So it's a lot of different asset classes. How do you think about your asset allocation from an asset class level? Well, I my ideal asset allocation is 20% stocks, 20% gold, 20% bonds, 20% real estate, and 20% cash. That is the ideal asset allocation. And I try to stay pretty close to that. Uh, I'm not religious about it. I try to stay within five to ten percent on each of those asset classes. Um, you know, that's a proprietary portfolio that I developed. I called it the Awesome Portfolio, and that portfolio, over a period of 48 years, returns 8.4 percent a year with half the risk of an 80/20 portfolio. Half the risk. Half the risk. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting, those those asset classes. First of all, I'm talking about real estate, how do you get exposure to real estate? Well, you know, for a lot of people, I, I actually would consider the equity in your own house as your exposure to real estate. And for me, my the equity in my house, I actually I own my house free and clear. So it's about 20 percent of my net worth. So that's my allocation to real estate. If I start getting more liquid assets then I start looking at REITs or REIT ETFs. That's how I get exposure. So you do do it through through uh, through liquid assets in the capital markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you know you could you could do real estate on an idiosyncratic basis. You could buy a rental property. You could buy a commercial property. That would also be exposure to real estate. The problem with that is that it's very undiversified. Right. Yeah. Yeah, a, partic a particular property, much uh, less diversified potentially than you could get exposure to in a REIT, for example. Yeah, yeah. And so let's switch gears and talk about the uh, talk about the the uh, rates and currency side of the uh, awesome portfolio. Well, the bond side, the bond side is twenty percent of the allocation, and that's you know that's difficult right now. I mean, the Treasury market is an absolute horror show. Um, it, nobody should be in investing in treasuries right now. 
Um, you know, I have a pretty high allocation to high yield and preferred stock. Uh, that was something I put on back in February or March. So that's how I get my exposure to fixed income. Um, you know, investment grade corporates, you know, munis, high yield corporates. I mean, my view on the credit markets is that they're going to be supported by the Fed for many, many years. These liquidity facilities that the Fed put in place back during the crisis, they don't end those after six months. It's going to be in place for five to 10 years. So a lot of people, they draw charts of HYG and they're like, oh, HYG is breaking down. And I'm like, it's nothing's happening. Like it's going, it's going to be fine. So you can, you can be in investment grade corporates or high yield and you can clip coupons of three, four, five percent pretty safely. Yeah. So this is the iShares uh, uh, iBox high yield corporate bond uh, uh, ETF. And I'm curious, is the thinking there that this is an implicit backstop from the Fed? Is that why you believe that uh, it's going to uh, endure over the longer time horizon? Yeah, and that was actually the rationale for putting it on. It was in the very early days of the crisis. Before they announced. Before they announced. One of the things I wrote about in the newsletter was that the Fed is going to backstop credit. They're going to backstop the corporate bond market. If you recall, liquidity had totally frozen up. Prices gapped down 30 to 35%. The ETFs were trading way below the NAV, and the corporate bond markets were broken. You know, so the Fed fixed the corporate bond markets, but of course, the Fed takes everything to an extreme, and now everything is massively overpriced. Yeah, so that was seen as a as a departure uh, by many. Uh, I'm curious what you saw that allowed you to anticipate that the Fed was going to be moving in that direction. Was it just because this has been the way it's been with the Fed? It's just a continual slide to greater and greater intervention, and it was the next uh, the next domino to fall. Yeah, that's what I believed. But in that particular case, it was the fact that the corporate bond markets had just ceased functioning. They had ceased functioning. Nothing was trading. They were broken. Right. Right. So when when the Fed wasn't acting because they thought corporate bonds were underpriced, they were acting because the liquidity mechanism had totally broken down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. What's your outlook going forward? Is it effectively just that central banks are going to continue to support that market and they're not going to trade based on price discovery, but by uh, by virtue of the uh, intervention? Yeah, I mean, and there's all sorts of unintended consequences. I mean, we're already dealing with zombie companies, right, like companies that should be bankrupt. I mean, the unintended consequences of this are just horrifying and they'll continue to be horrifying, but they're going to continue to do it. Does that give you pause as you look out across risk assets that there might be a moment of reckoning at some point, or is that still down the road because there's more ammunition left in the gun? Yeah, I think that's very, very far down the road. I don't think that's anything that we need to worry about in the next five years. Yeah. You know, another thing we were talking about offline was Bitcoin and the obviously the announcement coming out today uh, about PayPal. This could be potentially a game changer. I think I wrote a couple of weeks ago when this was being uh, talked about that the number of people who are going to have access uh, to direct custody uh, or indirect custody through PayPal of those assets is going to climb dramatically for Bitcoin right now. Yeah, I haven't even really thought through all the implications of it. I mean, it's pretty mind blowing. The one thing I will say is that the story of the last couple of months is increasing institutional sponsorship of Bitcoin. You had MicroStrategy, you had Square, you had Stone Ridge, you had big institutions taking positions in Bitcoin. You know, every every bubble, every bubble that happens, if you go back to the dot-com bubble in 2000, 
couple thousand dot com, dot com companies went to unsustainable heights. The bubble crashed. But then over the course of 20 years, the promise of the Internet was actually realized. And the second phase was a giant legitimate bull market. And the same thing is going to happen with Bitcoin. The bubble that we had in 2017, it flushed out all the speculators. And now we're having a real bull market that's going to last for many years. Yeah. So many interesting points there. I'm curious how you think about the time horizons. Look, there were periods of years there where Amazon continued to decline uh, off its 1999 highs. Uh, how do you think about the time horizons for something like this? Obviously, we saw a shakeout uh, in cryptocurrency after the peak in 2017. Uh, how do you understand and think about those time horizons? The one thing I think about is patience. And if there's anything I've learned over the last 20 years, it's to have a great deal of patience and things take a lot longer to play out than you think they will. And one of the things I wanted to talk about with you was this concept of selling things too early. Yeah. Right? The biggest sin that you can commit in trading is selling things too early. That's the in leaving lots of profits on the table. I have a great story. 2004. Uh, I wanted to get exposure to agriculture. Corn prices were going up. Wheat prices were going up. I couldn't trade futures at the time, but I wanted exposure in the equity market to agriculture. So I looked, and the only company I could find was this very small cap company called the Andersons. The ticker is A-N-D-E, and they operated grain elevators. So I bought stock in the Andersons. Now, this was in 2004. Now, the interesting thing is, is that this stock was so small that it was not even in the Russell 2000. I was working on the program trading desk at the time, and I found out that the Andersons was a candidate to be included in the Russell 2000. So it was included in the Russell 2000. I bought the stock at like 26. I sold it at 34, thinking that the trade was over, and three months later, it was at 90. Mm. Never, and you know, the, my whole thesis about agriculture turned out to be correct, but I sold too early. So Jared, here's the kill killer question for you. What do you know now that you did not know then that would have allowed you to hang in that trade and pick up that upside? It's not a matter of knowing anything. It's just a matter of being older and having patience. Patience is, you know, Bitcoin, we were talking about Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin isn't a one or two year trade. It's a 10 or 20 year trade, right? right. So. You know, it's that's that's another it gets back to what I was talking about earlier about stress. You know, I really don't pay a lot of attention to daily fluctuations. If I have conviction in something over a long term basis, I just let it play out. What does long term mean to you, Jared, on equities? Five to 10 years, five to 10 years. And what percentage of your equity portfolio are you invested in with a five to 10 year time horizon as your target? All of it. All of it. Yeah. And do you trade tactically around that, or do you just have a complete allocation to a five to 10 year horizon where you really like the strategic view of the company? No, I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to entry and exit points. I don't pay a lot of attention to technicals. I used to be better at that. I used to fancy myself this you know, sentiment trader and buying on panic and stuff like that. But I found that I'm, I'm not as good as that over time. So I'm not very scientific about it. I just take a position. And I leave it on. And if it goes in my favor, then I will add to it if I have capacity. 
And how do you psychologically find your way to doing that and not hitting the panic button the moment you see bad news in a 5% decline, for example? The, the way I look at it is if the fundamental story has changed, okay? If there's been a fundamental change in the thesis, that's when I will exit the trade. But usually that doesn't happen. Usually the thesis is pretty sound. And if there's not, you just shake it off and close the browser. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You know, another thing that we were talking about offline is this idea of betting against America. What does that mean to you? Okay. So first of all, this isn't my idea. Okay. I got this from Jawad. Okay. Jawad tweeted this out about a month ago. And it literally, it took about a month for it to percolate in my brain and to really, really think about this. And what he tweeted out about a month ago was he said, if you were bearish on America, if you thought that America was going down the tubes, you would buy stocks. Not sell stocks, you would buy stocks. He said, that's not a, that's not a typo. You would actually buy stocks. There is no better way to bet against America than buying stocks. What's the logic behind that thesis? Well, the logic behind that is that, uh, you know, if we want to get into politics a little bit, we got the election coming up. Uh, if Biden wins, we're going to get lots of spending. If Trump wins, we're going to get a little less spending. Uh, either way, we're living in this MMT world. And, you know, if we have a Democratic sweep, if Biden wins, the Senate goes Democratic, the House and they get rid of the filibuster, there's no check on spending whatsoever. You know, Biden has said that he's going to spend $7 trillion above and beyond what's already being spent in the budget, $7 trillion over the next 10 years. I think that happens in the first year and then some. Okay, so if we're spending this money and we're going into debt and the Fed is indirectly monetizing it through quantitative easing, then that's, that is how stocks go up because stocks are a store of value. You've seen this in several instances around the world. You know, what we're doing, if you want to talk about MMT philosophically, all it is is currency debasement with an academic veneer. What we're doing here is really not that different from what's going on in Argentina. Argentina has 100% inflation. The central bank is financing 60% of government expenditures. Like this is, this is our future. So in such an environment, you buy stocks as a hedge. As a hedge against inflation, because the rate yeah. is, as the, the currency declines, the nominal value of the stocks will increase. So a lot of people have been having trouble with this over the last few years. Well, the way they think about this is they say, I'm bearish. So I'm going to buy puts. I'm going to sell. I'm going to sell spoos. Uh, I'm going to make these bearish bets. And over the last couple of years, the market has gone up. And America, from you know a quantitative and qualitative standpoint, has objectively gotten worse in pretty much every respect, and stocks keep going up. If you wanted to bet against America, you would actually buy stocks. Yeah. You know, I, something that I think is interesting, Vice President Biden now uh, proposing the $7 trillion package. I remember, uh, I guess I'm old enough here to remember the $700 billion in 2008 being something that people hemmed and hawed over, up in order of magnitude. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I mean, $780 billion. That was Larry Summers. 
Uh, it was, they called it the recover. I forget what they called it, but the people called it the porculus, right? And it was all this infrastructure spending. And basically we paved the same roads over and over again. And, you know, that's also in our future. I mean, if you want to talk about infrastructure, this country doesn't do infrastructure very well. Yeah. We don't do it very well because of, per, you know, the, you know, the permitting process and stuff like that stuff takes years and years and years. So, you know, it's a lot of we're going to be paving a lot of roads. Yeah. I mean, it's just there was so much hemming and hawing about it. Right. The word unprecedented. I must have heard, you know, like 10 times a day about this unprecedented 700 and some odd billion dollars uh, coming out of stimulus. And, uh, you know, now it's it's it seems quaint, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And the multiplier, you know, they calculated the multiplier on that stimulus and it was one point zero three. So it really, it, it was, you know, it was ineffective, uh, but we're going to be doing the same thing. Well, at least it was greater than one. <laughs> you know, talking of other sort of things that I thought seemed uh, potentially uh, like ominous signs, I was talking, uh, I guess it was the day before yesterday with Ed Harrison about the uh, seven, uh, the, about the print uh, in China, 4.9% GDP growth. This effectively is China back on trend. Uh, the United States still is considerably below trend. China accounting for 30% uh, of global GDP growth in 2020. Uh, the idea that the great, mighty American economic engine is not leading this recovery, is not leading the way out of this crisis, is something that I think is pretty ominous. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a philosophical question. It's, you know, I think that, you know, back when, you know, Trump has sort of bragged about um, the economy under his watch, you know, we've consistently had 3% GDP. If you went back to the Clinton years, you had 4% GDP. If you went back before that, we had 6% GDP. Growth has been going down over time. Partly that's a function of demographics. Partly that's a function of regulation. Uh, I think going forward, we're not going to get those eye-popping GDP numbers. They're probably going to be below 3%. Yeah, and the prints have been weighed down, obviously, as a consequence of the crisis. Now, this is not uh, this isn't structural, this isn't trend, uh, but on a cyclical basis, because of the massive hit the economy has taken, substantial. I mean, you look at that chart of GDP. I don't know if we can put it up, uh, but if you look at the 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, 2009 period and compare it to what we've got now, it looks like a blip in terms of the uh, in terms of those negative prints. Yeah. I mean, back then, back in 2008, we had, I, I believe it was negative 6% GDP, which was the lowest that we had since 1982. And we're, you know, we're exceeding that now. Yeah. It looks like Q2 uh, 2020 minus uh, 30 plus percent. Yeah. And that's a little misleading because that's an annualized number and it's a quarterly number, but yeah. 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 So, but even a quarter of that, it's, it's still significant. Yeah. These are big hits. Yeah. So other thoughts, Jared, what else are you looking at today? Um, you know, I want to talk about trend following a little bit. Um, you know, I uh, one of my core beliefs is that people are either born trend followers or they're born mean reversion people. And <laughs> it's, you're just wired that way, you know, and you can't help it. You know, I'm a I'm a mean reversion guy. That's how I was born. When I started investing in 1997, when I was 23 years old, you know, it was the late 90s and I was getting Money Magazine from the grocery store and they had these lists of mutual funds. 
And they had these science and technology funds. That's what they called them back then, science and technology funds. And they're making like 30, 40% a year. My thought process at the time was that's not sustainable. I want to invest in the funds that are bad because they're probably going to recover. So I invested in value stocks. So in the late 90s, I invested in value stocks. So I missed out on the you know the last half of the dot-com bubble, but from the period of 2000 to 2003, I did great. Is it, it's like being born left-handed? Yeah, absolutely. You're, I mean, so over the last five years, I've tried to become a trend follower, right? Because ultimately, I think that's, that is how you make really, really big gains is being a trend follower. And it does not come naturally to me. So that's where we get into what we were talking about before, about taking positions for a really long time, adding to winners. That it, it does not come naturally to me. It's, it makes me very uncomfortable, but I'm trying to learn that. How did you make that shift? That's a pretty significant shift in the way you view the world. You know, I think there was... Gosh, I don't remember how long ago this was. This It was Stan Druckermiller was speaking at an event, okay? And the transcript of his talk made it out on the internet. And I started reading about his investing style. And I said, this is it. You know, this is how you do it. And I was, I was totally converted. So, I mean, the thing about being a mean reversion guy is that you have small gains. You know, you have, you, you have consistent gains, but you have small gains. But to make super normal returns, you have to be a trend follower. Yeah. So we've talked about some of the big picture points here, how you view markets, what your toolkit looks like. Where do you think we are right now? And what's your outlook for the future? You know, we have this thing called the election that's happening in two weeks. I like to refer to it as an event horizon, like with a black hole, right? We can't see what's on the other side. Like two weeks from now, Things are going to be totally different. Now, we do have some idea. Okay, we do have some idea. The market is pricing in a Biden victory unquestionably. Like, that's happening. Okay, doesn't matter what my opinion on it is. Doesn't matter what I think about it. That's what the market is pricing in. Solar stocks wouldn't be up 350% in six months if the market thought that Trump was going to win. So you can sort of prepare for this. And you say, what kind of things are going to do well under a Biden presidency? We just talked about spending. We talked about infrastructure. Uh, gold is going to be a consistent theme. Bitcoin is going to be a consistent theme. Um, and beyond that, it gets a little bit more complicated. So what are those complexities? And what are you at least thinking about, even if you haven't teased out the exact answer? Well, you know, one of the complicated parts is, is energy. Uh, because I, you know, people's assumption, remember, I said that everything takes way longer to play out than you think. California banned internal combustion engines as of 2035. They think they can get rid of gas powered cars in 15 years. That's a bit ambitious. Okay. We are still going to be driving cars in 2035. We're going to be driving cars for a hundred years. Okay. So under this thesis that things take a lot longer than you think, I think that we probably have one or two more energy bull markets while I'm alive and that they're tradable. Um, but my, you know, my concern is, is that, you know, under a Biden presidency, what does it mean from a regulatory standpoint? Is this bad for energy stocks? So it's very complicated. You know, if I had to guess, the thing that's going to get 
get rid of in California by 2035 is probably some of the language around that legislation. <laughs> yeah, probably. Jared, yeah. final thoughts as you leave us here. Uh, well, you know, there's, I, I think things are going to be kind of soporific over the next two weeks. It's going to be a little bit boring. Um, you know, what we had in 2016, what the, the election result was a surprise and it wasn't priced in. So then the market aggressively priced it in over the next couple of weeks. This time it's mostly priced in unless we get a surprise. So barring a surprise, it's going to be interesting to see how how much of this is already priced in and if there's a pullback. Yeah. Jared Dillian, Daily Dirt Nap. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.